Welcome to AZMCast, a peer-reviewed, evidence-based podcast, heavily seasoned with expert opinion. For all you new listeners, I'm going to give you a quick tutorial on how to use this podcast to its fullest potential. For you faithful veterans, you can go ahead and skip ahead to the good stuff. As you listen to this podcast, you'll hear contributors give opinions on everything from practice styles to diagnostic evaluations to emergency medicine philosophy. When you hear the bell ding, that means that the opinion is backed by evidence. Check your screen on your device to see the reference paper, and we suggest taking a screenshot for future reading. When you hear the turkey gobble, that's just our opinion, and you can decide whether you want to take it or leave it. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the April episode of AZMCast. It's been a month since the last podcast, but it seems like we've fit about 12 years into that one month. Or as I like to think of it, one night shift. Thank you so much to those of you who work our night shifts. I hope all of you are staying safe and adjusting to the new normal. This month, we are finally concluding our deep dive into procedural sedation with the culminating peer review by Dr. Clay Giuseppe and Dr. Mike McLaughlin, two of our alumni now in the Lake Tahoe area. We had to cut them off last month, but they had so much great insight that we gave them a standalone episode to finish. So to hear the entirety of their excellent peer review, please make sure to listen to the March episode. No poignant words this month. The fight continues, and we are on the front lines. Keep your PPE close and your head up. The work you are doing right now is changing lives. Okay, so what's next? You guys went into a lot of risk assessment stuff, which I think is cool. You talked about a lot of how do you identify people who are likely to have adverse events, um, how do you consent people. I thought it was kind of interesting, like who are the patients and what are the scenarios in which you're going to see adverse events or what better like who's going to get bagged <laughs> in in, in uh, my experience okay i just wanted to share with my this is anecdotal but i think it probably holds true uh, these are the elderly patients the you know the increased asa scores i find that it can be a little bit uh of a pitfall if you it, with really lightweight human beings like <laughs> granny like if, you got to be careful with like people who don't have a lot of adipose or muscle mass um, and they're lightweight. I think that the, the cruxes or the pitfalls to doing deep sedation, um, that kind of, ca- uh, catch us uh, off guard are people who, uh, have, um, and, uh, ETOH on board. Like I've seen that a number of times where someone comes in and they're pretty intoxicated. They got something bad, like a broken whatnot, and they need sedation. But then you walk in and you do a propofol sedation, for example, and, uh, give them some fentanyl and, and the, so be, be, keen on like what other respiratory depressants the patient may have on board. I also wanted to kind of give a shout out to the concept of opioids plus propofol. I know this is an interesting aspect of, of sedation. I know some people pre-treat with uh, fentanyl for almost every sedation, but really when you go in like a propofol sedation, propofol plus opioids are definitely a time that also in our data set and also in my experience, um, you definitely get some respiratory depression. I tend to avoid giving fentanyl directly before I give propofol. I'll, I'll try to do that earlier on in the patient's course before the sedation. Get the analgesia on board and then and then just use the propofol. That's another situation. Specifically, I will say the hip dislocations that are being done with propofol. 
uh, in our data set that the hip dislocations that were done with propofol represented like I think 80% of the bag of the BVM of the patients who received PPV like it was all hip dislocations. Makes sense. Those yeah. are the patients need to get the deepest. They need to be yeah. completely relaxed. Yeah, that's a that's a that's a dicey scenario. So you know, think about these patients. Think about these scenarios. If you think you're gonna gonna run into some problems, you know, maybe change your drugs up a bit. Change your depth up a bit. Maybe use uh, ketamine um, instead of propofol uh, or both or a combination. Um, but you know, these are important things, and you guys covered this really well. This is something I I wanted to really emphasize and with respect to like risk assessment and consenting patients. I think it's really important to be honest that the adverse event rate is is incredibly low for ED procedural sedation in the hands of board certified emergency physicians. I mean, it is very very rare. It's hard to estimate like in the research that is available. It's it's just so rare. So I think like as far as consenting a patient or actually doing a risk benefit analysis on your own, should I sedate this patient? I think you know, I think you can be optimistic. You know, they, you guys talked about how different specialties consent and we tend to be a little bit nihilistic, I think sometimes, but I think sometimes we also overestimate risk and say, oh, it's too risky to do the sedation. Let's do it another way or let's have somebody else do it. Uh, but the risk of sedation is really low. I agree a hundred percent. I don't think I'm lying when I tell patients that the risk of procedural sedation is incredibly low for a patient oriented outcome that they care about something really serious, brain damage or some other anoxic event, having a stroke, dying, it legitimately is one in many, many thousands, probably one in tens of thousands. Mm -hmm. I think you can be optimistic when you sedate patients uh, and consent patients. You certainly need to explain these risks, and I do that, but I wouldn't overblow those risks or overstate those risks to the patient. I like how Brian pointed out, you want to you know decide the drug and the depth beforehand um, tell the patient what drug, what depth you're planning to do and what that means, you know, discuss the risks realistically. And I, and also I just wanted to reiterate, tell them, you know, like how you're prepared to manage that risk, you know, Oh, you may lose your airway. We may have to put you on a ventilator. See all this equipment we have over here. We've got all the airway equipment bedside. I got my RT. We've got the bag. We've, we're ready for that. Okay. You might have low blood pressure. See, we got this fluid going. We have vasopressors in the room. That's how we'll, we'll deal with that. You might, um, slow your breathing down. We have this oxygen here, you know, just telling them these are the things that could happen. This is how we're prepared to deal with those things. I think I liked how Brian said that, 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 that's kind of how I do it too. So that you guys pretty much nailed the consent. Um, next point you guys brought up was end title supplemental oxygen, sort of the debate utility of these two things. I, I, I don't, this is such a fun conversation to have. We don't need to, you guys <laughs> did, you guys did it well. I, I will say a couple things about end title. First of all, it's a bit of a moot point because it's required, and it's required by CMS, and it's required also for moderate sedation. So any sedation level greater than or equal to moderate, including any of your any of your max sedations like propofol or deep or prolonged, you know, deeper sedations, they all it doesn't matter the level. They all require untitled. I'm a big fan. I really like it. I do not pretend that it changes patient outcomes or saves any lives. <laughs> yes. You know, it's hard to prevent something that almost never happens, but and I do think that it could be more noise than signal, but I think if you use it rationally as sort of a third eye to kind of keep on the patient. I do want to say that I have noticed in our in our setting that the use of entitled CO2 and having RT at the bedside can I think it can result in increased rates of bag bagging. Like I think somebody some somebody at the bedside can see the entitled go flat and say, "Oh my gosh, they're apneic and just start bagging them." And I, in our data set, it almost seemed that that having that the, the extra respiratory therapist and the end title going when we changed our policy kind of resulted in some unnecessary bagging. So don't let 
these monitors, you know, usurp your clinical judgment, you know, watch the chest, you know, watch the upper airway, make sure it's not obstructed, you know, make sure that they still have a tidal volume and a respiratory drive. Just like anything in our practice, it's just another piece of information. Don't be beholden to it. It's not the only piece of information you have. Mm-hmm. Um, I agree. I like having end title, but it's not the end all be all. And I don't make all of my decisions based solely upon that number or waveform. What's your thought on oxygen? I do feel more strongly about this. I'm a big fan of supplemental oxygen. So kind of thinking through the potentially serious adverse events of procedural sedation or most really dangerous adverse events are going to be related to hypoxia. Any hypotension short of a cardiac arrest is going to be very transient and probably clinically insignificant. They're going to be able to tolerate a blood pressure of 85 for 90 seconds. Totally. And they're going to be able to tolerate some transient hypertension as well. Similarly, unless they're severely acidotic, which they're not going to be beforehand, they can tolerate a brief period of hypoventilation. But hypoxia is going to be what you know leads down the road to a bradyacystolic arrest. It's going to be the thing that gives them some kind of anoxic injury. It all hypoxia is really what I care about. Yeah, I feel the same. And I want to give myself the most amount of buffer possible to prevent that. So I will always pre-oxygenate my patients on a non-rebreather mask, and I will have supplemental oxygen on during the procedure. I like the combo of end title and a non-rebreather mask, and I've rarely, if ever, had to back a patient, even with somebody who's gone a little bit deeper than I thought. So I would encourage you to at least consider hyperoxygenating those patients for the reasons I mentioned. I really don't see a downside. As long as you're monitoring their ventilation and understanding that the minute the sats start to drop, you're probably already off the curve. Yeah. And you need, you're going <laughs> to need busy. to intervene, yeah. but we know how to intervene. We know how to bag patients. Yeah. I'm a big fan of hyperoxygenation in these cases. I also use um, oxygen routinely. Next, you guys, we're talking about the timeout. The only thing I want to say about the timeout is that um, I think it's such a great reminder to go have a checklist. Like you guys talked about a checklist. I, I am kind of a hot, cold fan of checklists in general, but there are certain cases in like, like entitled or uh, endotracheal, like intubation in RSI. Like I love checklists in these circumstances right before you sedate a patient is a great time to stop. Look at your team. Here's the plan. Here's the drug. Check the syringe, run through your airway equipment, just like you would before you RSI someone, you know, have your extra advanced air airway equipment, rescue equipment, have some pressors nearby, maybe the RSI box in the room. Just go through the list. Suction's on, O2's on, end titles working. Check your IV. I've seen that many times where you like get everything ready to go to push the meds and the IV's sort of like occluded or something or positional or something. Checklists, definitely approve. High approval rating. I like to talk uh, also about the dosing, like what doses we're going to do and say it out loud and look at the syringe. I've seen that a number of times and quality uh improvement they're the, the only cases of anything that would even remotely you know qualify as a sedation adverse event have been drug related absolutely know? i like to this is one instance the other one for me is epinephrine i like yeah, to double yeah. check dosing visually myself with the nurse before the drug is given yeah this is a good time to mention uh quickly when you're sedating children just 
think in your head, you know, the minute before you push it, just am I mixing up pounds and kilograms? Yeah. <laughs> we had that case here we where did. they, where yeah, they uh, mixed up pounds and kilograms and the child got 2.2 oh. 2 times higher dose than necessary. Yeah, they didn't did. result in any kind of adverse event other than that they were out longer. And it almost happened to me. Yeah. I almost got sandbagged there where, yeah. you know, I order 1.5 milligrams per kilogram of ketamine and you step back and you're like, wait, this kid's six years old. They don't weigh 40 kilograms. Yes. They, they weigh more like 20 kilograms. What's yeah. going on here? Oh, Duh. We got pounds. All right, let's yeah. back up and give the correct dose here. That's the one thing that's ever everyone's seen, seen the drug, uh, the dosing error. So just double check. Next, you guys get into the meds, which of course yeah, is kind move of the, on to the, the meat and potatoes. The drugs. Um, just briefly, you guys kind of covered everything, so we're just going to do some reiterating here. I, I, I also want to really give props to fentanyl. I'm kind of a fentanyl file fentanyl file <laughs> that's what i am i love it i mean it's an amazing drug and i think i think like being very heavy-handed with fentanyl titration like really getting up getting a big fat dose on you know one mic per kilo for sure and then rapidly titrating that a couple of times um can really get you through a lot like i found that to be ideal for like chest tubes and some incision and drainages i think you know if you have something that needs to get done right now and you can't do a procedural sedation I think a really good alternative is, you know, a lot of local anesthesia and a really heavy-handed fentanyl titration. Remy fentanyl sounds like a dream come true. I, I, I really wish that I had that. But fentanyl is just great. And I also, you guys seemed a little bit wishy-washy and um, not so stoked on intranasal fentanyl. I, ha I have to say that's probably one of my favorite things on the planet. Um, I think it's very important to make sure that the nurse is not you know, the patient's not sniffing it up and there's a not, not too much volume and it's not condensing on the posterior pharynx and that you're doing it correctly. Um, and I've also found that um, two mics per kilo is where to where to be. Like I've played around with one and 1.5 and, you know, the literature is kind of 1.5 to two and maybe higher. I think that intranasal fentanyl is awesome. And I think it's a, it has been a bit of a game changer for me. So you guys kind of were love-hate. I'm strongly in favor of that. I think intranasal medications are a good thing to be really good at in general, you know, with the exception of ketamine. You know, we just haven't figured that one out. I don't think there's any intranasal ketamine that's very attractive to me either for pain or for sedation. Right on. No arguments for me. I also use fentanyl quite a bit. I don't really use it as a sedation medicine per se. I think about yeah. it more of a Analgesia. pain medication. Yeah. 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 All my patients were going to be sedated, especially with drugs like propofol. I'm going to have Opiates on board beforehand, not necessarily immediately beforehand, as we will get to, but certainly get the pain meds on board, titrate it up rapidly to effect. And I uh, also am a fan of nasal medications, as long as it's given correctly. Yeah. I think you need to remember that, you know, they're not blowing a line of cocaine. <laughs> I know. They don't need to take some <laughs> huge tidal volume sniff through their nose when they get the medication. <laughs> when that, If they do that, it's just going to get sucked into their pharynx and they're going to swallow it. So... Uh, yeah, it really does work. Um, it really works well and can save you an IV in a lot of cases. How about midazolam? D do you ever use midazolam for sedation? Not alone for sedation. I use it for anxiolysis. Yeah, same. I don't like it for a true sedation, but just like you guys were saying, there's plenty of procedures where they don't really need a true procedural sedation, but I just want to take the edge off the kid who needs the lack repair and they're just a little bit too squirrely, yeah. little intranasal versed, even adults a little intranasal fentanyl or Versed before an IND is going to make things go more smoothly. Yeah, I agree. I think of it as an anxiolytic. I, I really 100%. don't, I don't yeah. even think of it really as a 
procedural sedation agent. It just doesn't have the pharmacokinetics. It's unpredictable. I agree. I think we had three to less than 5% of our, of our cases are being done with fentanyl and midazolam now. So that's 95% of our patients are getting propofol, ketamine, and a handful of atomidate cases. So, yeah, so midazolam, no thanks. Propofol, <laughs> I think is amazing. Everyone thinks is amazing. Um, I, you know, it's interesting. I, propofol used to be kind of the thing for me, like for most of my sedations. But honestly, I don't really use it alone much anymore, except with the with the one exception being cardioversion. I do use it quite often in adults. It's probably my go-to drug in adults. I will mix in some ketamine from time to time. I do love it for stable cardioversions, particularly mm-hmm. atrial fibrillation. I have found that I've been starting a little bit on the lower side as my bolus, a little bit more towards Mm -hmm. the 0.5 milligrams per kilogram, maybe a little bit higher than that. Mm -hmm. But it's rare now that I lead with the one milligram per kilogram bolus. I've just found in my experience that tends to lead to a little bit more apnea and just a little bit more gives me that, you know, really a nerve wracking situation where the patient's not breathing for a little bit longer than I would like. I don't pre-treat immediately prior to the procedure with opiates because, again, I found that that leads to more respiratory depression. 100% of my patients are going to have pain medicine on some board. Form of, yeah, some form of pain medicine. Um, it used to be sort of a reflex, like, oh, I'm doing a propofol sedation. I'm going to give some fentanyl with it. I've just found that you really don't need that a lot of the time, and I know there's a little bit of a debate there, but my experience is that these, these patients don't have pain. They don't remember. So, yeah, propofol is, uh, I agree. Mike kind of said everything there. I think there's you know, certain patients where you want to give them a big bolus up front and and get to where you want to go with one dose. And there's other patients that you want to, you know, keep them a little lighter. And so you might titrate a little more slowly. The, my, the thing that I would say is just, I think, you know, from a, from reviewing cases and looking at cases in which patients do have respiratory depression with propofol, you, you definitely see a lot of problems with um, rapid titration. And you guys talked about that, but that's I think one of the areas of procedural sedation is specific propofol titration. Just take your time, you know, like just take your time, lower your dose, give it a minute. Don't stack your doses. Like if you're up to three to four doses of propofol to get your patient where you want, you may consider adding something like ketamine and, you know, cause you really, it's going to start to accumulate and you're going to have, um, that's when problems happen. So just be careful with the titration of propofol. As um, emergency physicians, we are all impatient by nature. Yes. <laughs> And 60 seconds, waiting, yeah, 60 crazy. seconds can seem like an eternity at the bedside, but you <laughs> oh, got to do is it. an eternity. <laughs> I would say, you know, there's three cases to me where I'm going to recommend you decrease the dose. Alcohol on board. Bingo. Bingo. Elderly patients. And then the patients who get opiates immediately before the procedure. Exactly. If that's your style, no problems, but just yeah. realize you're going to have to decrease your doses. And I would lean more towards that 0.5 milligrams per kilogram as your initial bolus. I still do that for cardioversion. I like to give them the 0.5. Mm-hmm. Talking to them, the minute that I they close their eyes, I yell their name. <laughs> they don't open their eyes with that kind of loud yell. That's when I hit the, the shock button. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. Hey, Billy. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. All right, let's just talk. We're almost done here. We're just having having some fun. Ketamine. Uh, I um I don't I don't want to sound like, you know, I guess parabolic or anecdotal about ketamine, but I, I I really think that you can pretty much do anything you want in the in the ED with ketamine alone. Like if you were an emergency physician, you just said ketamine's my only agent for procedural sedation. That'd be fine. I mean I mean honestly, the whole all of the history of ketamine and like don't give it to adults and don't give it to psych patients and don't give it to people with head injured. 
and don't give it to this and don't all that is kind of fallen away there i i feel like it's just such a great uh sedation agent it's kind of the holy grail you know it gives you like you guys were saying the triple a's you know the amnesia analgesia and anesthesia kind of hits them all I, i i use it a lot i really do and um I will say that you guys didn't talk much about low-dose ketamine, which, you know, I applaud you because everyone else talks about it ad nauseum. But but in the setting of being um, a very important sort of adjuvant for analgesia in the ED, I think it's worth kind of talking about a little bit, not necessarily like its role as analgesic in and of itself. It, I will sometimes actually use low-dose ketamine doses in, these, in conjunction with propofol or during a sedation as an analgesic. Like, for example, like if you have the one of these patients, like one of the older patients or the hips, and you are doing a propofol sedation and you feel like you need some analgesic, you know, it is, I, I've been playing around with just giving the 0.3 per kilo. I think it, I guess what I'm saying is I think that the low dose ketamine that we use for pain in the ED all the time, I think it actually is underused as an analgesic adjuvant for procedural sedation. I think it, there's a pretty cool role there. No one's studied it, of course. I've been playing around with it and I find it to be very helpful. Anyway, low dose ketamine is a good thing to have in your toolkit. I, I use it quite a lot in, in ED patients in general. A lot of times up front, you know, someone who might get a sedation later. So, but yeah, ketamine has become sort of my my go-to. I will just emphasize, um, I think it's uh, very important to pre-treat ad- adults with ketamine in whom you're giving ketamine um, with midazolam. Um, I do it routinely. There is some RCT level data on that. And then both kids and adults, I pre-treat with Zofran. There's some RCT level data that suggests you can reduce, you know, emesis and post, uh, post, uh, anesthetic, uh, nausea. So Zofran, Medaz, otherwise I don't think there's any role for adjuvant, uh, meds, you know, anticholinergics and, and the like, all that kind of foo-foo that we used to talk about a lot. Brian specifically was talking about using different dosages of ketamine for sedation, which, you know, it's interesting to hear his experience. He's clearly got a lot of experience with it. My experience, I've played around with ketamine for years and I feel like there's just a little bit of uncertainty going, you know, 0.5 to 1.5 megs per kilo. Like it works most of the time, but it's a little bit variable. Some people don't quite dissociate. Um, Some people get a little bit, you know, have psychomimetic reactions in that zone somewhere. So basically when I'm doing procedural sedation, like I just give two per kilo to everyone, kids and adults, it's very, very reliable. I would agree that ketamine to me is an on or off drug. Yeah. I don't titrate it much. Excluding low dose ketamine for pain for sedation to me, it's either on or off. And if you're in between, that's the bad place. Those are the patients who are mm. having the bad trip. It's like no man's land. Yeah, you don't know exactly. what you're going to get. I personally use ketamine all the time. It is my go-to drug in kids. I use it oh, for sure. yeah. almost 100% of the time in children. I like 1.5 milligrams per kilogram IV in kids. That's just my dose. I found works for me. Certainly nothing wrong with two. A um, few things about ketamine. To me, I would agree that you know pretreatment in adults – with some midazolam or giving squirting in a little bit of propofol during the procedure is helpful for decreasing those recover, recovery reactions. There is some data from the annals in 2011 that midaz uh, pretreatment in adults prior to ketamine did reduce recovery agitation. And same thing with the Zofran, some data from 2008 in children that it reduced the incidence of vomiting in yeah. IV ketamine sedation. I've kind of extrapolated that to all of my sedations, adults and kids. Yeah. To me, Zofran is low cost and low risk, and I give it to everybody before a sedation. But you're not giving midaz to the kids pre-treatment. Correct. Yeah. 
I, I do not believe that there's any data to support pretreatment routinely in children. If they have an emergency reaction, you can go ahead and give them a little bit of midazolam, but I would not pretreat children. Yeah, me either. Yeah, for me, uh, I like ketamine in the longer procedures or procedures where it's going to be really difficult for me to step away and do some titration of the drug. Chest tube is a great example. You know, I'm I'm, I'm sterile. I'm in the middle of a difficult procedure. I'm not going to break sterility to have to intervene during the procedure to give more drugs or to titrate or do a jaw thrust. Ketamine to me is it's safer, in my opinion, than a lot of these other drugs as far as respiratory depression goes. Um, I don't know if the data bears that out, but I just I find ketamine to be a really safe, effective drug. Mm-hmm. Besides the emergence thing in adults, it's the only hesitation I really have. Yeah, I agree. I've kind of gotten over that too, which um, kind of brings us to the... I, oh, I... Reminded me, you just reminded me, I just wanted to point out something you guys were talking about, uh, nurse-administered medications. Nurses can't, <laughs> they can, nurses can't push these drugs in a lot of states. You know, you guys mentioned that, and you talked about it, and you went back and forth. But like in this, in, in California, for example, in many, many states across the country, nurses can't push the meds flat out. Now, that's obviously ridiculous and is subject to change at any moment. But like if you're scrubbed in doing a chest tube, like titrating propofol is not really an option. So when you're by yourself, like in single coverage, I think the ketamine sedations Mm -hmm. become a little bit more reliable and predictable. And and I think a little bit more effective in terms of like your resource availability, personnel availability. Another reason to choose ketamine is it's not going to cause hypotension. I love it in trauma patients. Oh, good point. Yeah. You got to get a hip in and a multiply injured patient, or you got to throw in a chest tube in a multiply injured patient who you you might not want to intubate right away. So those patients are great. Um, but the only time I have a little bit of hesitation with it is tachyarrhythmias. I wouldn't use it for... Right. For I personally it. wouldn't use it for cardioversion in a tachyarrhythmia. I also have no problems personally using IM ketamine in children. I prefer the IV route. They go down faster. They wake up faster. I have an IV if there's any kind of complication. But that being said, ketamine is so safe that I'm not opposed to doing it IM. I've just had those experiences where the nurses are flailing to get an IV in a two-year-old. Totally. And you're like, let's just give the IM medication. We can get an IV in once they go down, if necessary. Yeah. Um, it does take longer to go down, so be aware of that. Don't dose stack. I don't do it very often just because of the duration. But you're right. Every now and again, it's not worth fighting a kid to get an IV in. Just I discussed that with in. the parents, to totally. be honest. Same. We can try to get an IV. It'll be a little bit faster on, faster off, lower dose. But they're both completely safe. And if we'd rather just give the drug... I got no problems doing IM ketamine in children. Yeah, same. I don't do it, but I don't berate my colleagues who do. <laughs> <laughs> okay, lastly, you guys talked about ketafol. And, uh, you know, I don't know. Like, I tend to, you guys seem sort of poo-poo on that. I, I totally kind of agree. I used to do it all the time. I thought it was super cool. It makes a lot of sense. Um, it definitely works well. There's no question. But I over the years, I, I never really mixed it. I would kind of wade in with ketamine and then, like, kind of yeah. give propofol PRN. And I think that's kind of become my go-to. I give, you know, the ketamine. I see what happens. You know, sometimes I'll do one per if I know I'm giving propofol, but I'll typically just sedate them with ketamine. You know, if it's a hip or something that takes longer or deeper levels of sedation or deeper levels of relaxation, for example, then sometimes I'll give a bolus of propofol here and there. But I don't really, I find over the years, like I rarely need the propofol. You know, uh, one time when propofol is kind of nice that I've found 
and done a few times now is actually on the way out, like when they're having their emergence reaction. Like if they are having any sort of psychomimetic dysphoria reaction as they metabolize the ketamine, that's a really good time to use propofol. I think it's underused in that setting. Like a lot of times people will give uh, a benzo, which lasts lasts much longer. So, you know, I think ketafol or excuse me, ketamine plus, or for me, ketafol equals like ketamine. Absolutely. Yeah. Plus or minus propofol. That's what I was going to say. When I when <laughs> this needed. first came on the scene, yeah, like, oh, mixing it cool. together and kind of giving equal yeah. doses in the same syringe. But if I'm going to use the combination, I like to give a dose of ketamine. I would probably go one milligram per kilogram mm-hmm. IV in an adult who I was going to do the combination sedation of ketamine, get them dissociated or nearly dissociated, and then season with propofol to taste. Yeah. Exactly. I like it for uh, something like a hip where you're going to need to get them quite deep. And I'd be a little bit more worried about respiratory depression with propofol alone to get them that deep. So start with the ketamine, get them where you need to go with the propofol. Maybe there's less risk given the inherent properties of the drugs, but I don't think the data bears that out. Yeah, and it never will. Again, you'd have to have, you know, 100,000 patients in each arm of a trial to assess for harm. Which is never going to happen. So oh, we got we got to throw in my my little pitch for Atomidate. Oh oh yeah. <laughs> Lastly, and I guess perhaps least. Yeah, exactly. Atomidate. You guys didn't even mention Atomidate. What's up with that? <laughs> so <laughs> not even a head nod. I will say number one with Atomidate, myoclonus is real and Very. will happen almost one hundred percent of the time. If I give it, it will. Absolutely. It's like if I give it, it's it's in, in, invariable. I still have. Atomidate in the toolbox for one specific instance. Cardioverting somebody who is unstable or semi-stable but still awake. The classic example for this to me is ventricular tachycardia. Yeah. So we don't have a cardiologist in-house where we practice. We don't have a cath lab. If somebody comes in in VT, they're getting transferred. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to mess around too long with drugs I just like to use electricity. It works. It's reliable. It has a short half-life. I would be a little bit wary about the cardio depression associated with other drugs like propofol. And to me, that's a great time to give them atomidate. 0.1 milligrams per kilogram. It's cardio-stable. It's not going to cause any kind of hypotension. It's not supposed to cause any kind of cardiac depression. Yeah, or arrhythmia. I would never sit personally cardiovert somebody who's at all awake without sedation. The only time I would ever yeah. cardiovert somebody without sedation is if they're unconscious. Agree. So even if they're, you know, pseudo stable, semi stable, or borderline unstable, I like to get a little bit of drug on board so they don't remember the procedure. And I like doing atomidate in that one specific instance. That's a great point. I, I, ha- I haven't had that experience, um, at least recently, but yeah, I think that that's a great time for atomidate. It definitely works and it's definitely effective and safe. So there's there's for for the listeners, uh, we're going back old school. <laughs> talk about Atomidate. These guys clearly uh, um, are not a fa- not a fan. So I guess that's about it. Um, hopefully, found some of the perspective um, helpful. It's really a pleasure to be back on the podcast. Thanks for the invite. Absolutely. Thanks again for having us. Great job covering this topic. Oh, you yeah. guys killed it. Such a huge topic. So important. Become an expert. Play by the rules. Be vigilant. Give the drugs liberally. Keep sedating. (laughs) (laughs) See you later, guys. Bye-bye.